will be reading the commandment related to the Sabbath as well as our passage in our reading today. And so we begin by reading from the book of Exodus. Hear now the word of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's background for our reading this morning from Matthew chapter 12, as we begin reading in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did while he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God And ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. O God, whether we always realize it or not, our souls need a day of rest. We need a day to cease from striving, to cease from our worldly burdens. Would you give that to us even right now? Would you give us true spiritual rest, Lord? Would you open our mind and our ears and our heart to be confronted with you, but also to simply see the gift that you have for us? Help us equally to see what a kindness and what a grace it is that you hold out to us in the Lord's day. I pray that we would take hold of that gift. I pray that we would take that gift you've given to us and that we would take advantage of it, that we would take advantage of the very thing you've given for our advantage. And I pray that you would help us to do things that allow others to do so as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was not uh, raised to hold 
Lord's Day observance near and dear to my heart. Um, I was certainly taught, and it was certainly demonstrated for me that I should always attend church on Sundays. My, my parents made that very clear. Um, except for a couple of seasons in my parents' lives, I, I can remember my parents were always very serious about making sure that we attended church on Sundays, that we were always there for worship. But looking back, I, I realized that we did attend a church, but we did not observe the Lord's Day. We attended church, but we didn't observe the Lord's Day. Um, what I mean by that is, once church was over with, we were back to regular life. Um, my parents would take us out to eat on Sundays. We would go shopping. We basically did everything we normally did, but we had the added burden of going to church as an extra part of our routine. And so in some ways, Sunday was actually the busiest day of the week because not only are you trying to do everything else, but you've also got to go to church. And so your day ends up being less productive and it ends up being fuller. And so our day, when I was a kid, I remember Sundays being incredibly busy days. But in my family, we had, you know how everybody, I don't know if everybody does, but in our family, we had the crazy aunt, the crazy wild-eyed aunt. And her name was Trellabel. And I don't know if any of you have ever known a Trellabel before. Um, and it gets weirder because our family nickname for her was Trolley. We called her Aunt Trolley. And I never knew that was a weird name until I was grown and out of the house. And I kept looking around wondering, why am I not running into, into any Trellabels or Trolleys? And... Um, but anyway, I, I realize uh, now that her name was not a normal name, but she, this was an amazing woman. Uh, she was my great aunt. My great grandparents died in the Dust Bowl. They lived in the southwest corner of the state of Kansas during the Dust Bowl, uh, during the worst time of it. Uh, Dalhart, Texas was the center, supposedly, of the Dust Bowl. And if you watch Ken Burns' documentary on. Um, uh, on the Dust Bowl, you will find that the whole story pretty much centers around where my, great, where my grandmother and my great aunt grew up. And Trellabel, being only, uh, I think she was only 18 years old, inherited my grandmother, her twin brothers, and her sister. So she inherited four children. Imagine being an 18-year-old and inheriting four children to take care of during the deepest, darkest parts of the Great Depression. That was my Aunt Trellabelle. And she took care of these children, and they survived. They survived into their 90s. All of them did. I mean, I just, I'm still amazed when I think of my Aunt Trellabelle. And when I was really young, I didn't appreciate her, and I didn't realize how amazing that was. They sounded like old, dusty, boring stories to me, which they were dusty. Um, they weren't boring, though. Um, they shouldn't have been to me. But to my, to my grandmother, Doris, Aunt Trolley was more like her mother. And our family had nothing but amazing things to say about her. They had nothing but praise for her. However, this, there was this one thing about Aunt Trolley that people whispered about. She did not, do not, do not invite her to go out to eat on Sundays. Uh, don't do it because... Not only will she not go, but she will become strangely silent, and you won't hear from Aunt Trolley. Um, 
This woman was a saint in all of their minds, but in this one area, she was insane. She was insane. They couldn't even wrap their heads around what was wrong with her. Um, I learned this the hard way, uh, that she did not do commerce on the Lord's Day. Uh, During the summer, she would pay me $15. I would get in my Ford Ranger pickup truck, a little old uh, manual uh, Ford Ranger, and I would put the the mower in the back, and I would drive to Aunt Trolley's house, and I would mow her lawn. I'd drive 20 miles to her house. I'd mow her lawn, and she'd give me $15, which was the, didn't feel, it felt like a ton back then. Um, so here was, here was the deal. One Sunday after church, I said to my parents, I'm going to go mow Aunt Trolley's lawn this afternoon. And they looked at each other, and they wondered if that was actually going to work. <laughs> and they said, just show up and start doing it, because if you go talk to her, she won't let you. And I was like, well, I don't understand why that would happen, but fine. So I go to Aunt Trolley's house, and I get the mower out of the car, out of the truck, and I lift it out, and I sit it on the ground, and I start mowing the lawn. And about 60 seconds pass, and Aunt Trolley comes running out of the house, waving her arms. She doesn't have her shoes on. She's waving her arms in the air, telling me, stop, stop. And she said, don't you know the Lord's commandment? You shall not do any work, nor your male servant. Um, she could not possibly in good conscience ask me to work for her on a day when the Lord said that we both should be resting. Uh, It was summer. I could have come any of the other six days of the week, before or after, and that was the time that I decided to agree with my family, yes, Aunt Trolley is crazy. But was she? Now, here I am in my 40s, and I could not feel more fondly towards my Aunt Trolley, and I wish that she was here to talk to and to learn about her convictions and to hear wisdom from her, uh, but she's not here. Was my Aunt Trolley crazy? She had a crazy name, but was she crazy? Was she wrong? Was she overly strict? Was she a Pharisee? Or was she onto something that the rest of my family was missing out on? You know, I thought she was crazy at the time, but now my, my own conviction on the Lord's Day is far closer to my aunt's than I ever would have guessed that it would be. What happened? Well, in the Western world, something's happened. It feels so big, it feels hard to explain. It's the big movements that are harder to explain. Um, and certainly in the context of a simple sermon that's meant to open the scriptures, it seems a little overly ambitious. But here's what I see, at least. I see us as Christians, um, and we look at the Ten Commandments, and we're quite enamored with them. We talk about them as though they're still important. We talk about how they may even be the thing that saves society, if we could just put the Ten Commandments into practice. When I lived in Mississippi, it was not unusual at all to drive past a plumbing business, for example, that for some reason had the Ten Commandments built and a replica of them put up on the out in front of the business. Um, There was this belief, if only we could recapture the Ten Commandments, something good would happen in our society. Um, But in the same places where the Ten Commandments are supposedly revered, the church is empty out on Sundays and create what some in the food service industry call the Sunday flood. Um, Church is empty out and suddenly commerce comes alive. The restaurants are full of well-dressed patrons just finished with worship Um, Christians are out and about seemingly treating Sunday like any other day. What happened? We love the Ten Commandments. We believe they're important, but one of them is there, and it's like it feels more like an obstacle than it does a blessing. 
And so here's what happens. I think in the West, we've cut down our understanding of the Lord's Day to simply making sure you're at church, right? As long as you go to church, then you've, you've honored the Lord's Day. You've got the rest that God had for you. Now it's on to the rest of life. And I would say this, that we really are only getting one aspect of the blessing God has for us on the Lord's Day, if that's what we, we whittle it down to. Obviously, there are differences from the way the Jews celebrated the Sabbath. We don't celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday as the, as the Jews did and still do. Uh, the Lord Jesus rose on Sunday. Um, he rose, uh, and we see that the church in the book of Acts began worshiping the Lord Jesus on Sunday. Uh, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out in the book of Acts, chapter 2, was a Sunday. We know that the Christians in Ephesus gathered to worship on Sunday to break bread on a regular basis. We know that Paul assumed that the day that the Christians would be gathered together to take up an offering for the saints in Corinth was on a Sunday. We also know from extremely early writers in the church that Christians were known to gather on Sundays for worship. So obviously the resurrection reordered things from what the Jews had done. One thing to keep in mind is that the Ten Commandments specify a pattern but not a day. The pattern is work work six days rest one. Six days of work, one day of rest. Now, Christians early on did interpret that resurrection as the sign uh, that the day of rising and the day of resting should go hand in hand together. And so, to this day, the Jews who insist there was no resurrection continue to worship Jesus as though there, or worship as though there was no resurrection. Now, I've mentioned this already. I need to say a bit more. Is there more to the Sabbath than just attending church? A huge part of the Lord's Day is that we're not supposed to work if we can help it. Um, But also that we're not to hire people to work for us as well. That's embedded here in the commandment. Not only that, but that we should dedicate the day to the Lord. Um, It should be a different day. It should be a day that feels different from the rest of the week. It should be a day that's for Him and, and what matters to Him, where we listen to Him, right? Now, at first, I think... If you're not used to doing things like that, it would feel like a burden. Like, Lord, don't you know that I need to do these things now? Or else next week will be heavier. If I, if I could work on Sunday, the rest of the week would be so much lighter. Why don't I spread it out over seven days instead of working six days and taking one off? Why don't I do that? You know, if you really think about it, Sunday really drags the rest of the week down, and it makes the burdens of life heavier on all of those other days, doesn't it? Maybe. Maybe taking one mandatory day off could be seen as a burden if you only need worldly concerns taken care of, but what, is, what about your spiritual needs? How do, how do those get taken care of? When do those get taken care of? How does it help your spiritual needs if you have no Lord's Day rest? Anyway, the the pattern of God is actually not to give us worldly strength. It's actually not to give us physical strength. Instead, he he takes away worldly strength. That's often what God does. Maybe the Lord's Day really is a less productive day for you and for us and for the people of this world as they're running the rat race, and maybe we do fall behind. But isn't that actually what God does with Israel in the Scripture? He intentionally takes away things that you would think would make them more productive. He does this all over in the Old Testament. He tells them not to work one-seventh of the week. That's one-seventh of productivity. Could you imagine the GDP of Israel if they had worked an extra seventh of the week? 
He tells them to let the land lie fallow every seven years and not grow, grow crops on it in Exodus 23. That feels a little crazy, doesn't it? Just don't grow anything one-seventh of the existence of your fields. When the battle comes, what does he do? Especially, for example, with Gideon. He cuts the army down and he lets the army have less soldiers and yet he wins with less. Um, He whittles away the human means of productivity so that they can let it be the Lord's victory. That's his pattern. And in a sense, that's what the Lord's day is, right? Every week he's telling us, Lose a day of worldly productivity and trust me with the day you won't be working. But in the process, he also does something else. He takes away our worldly means and then he fortifies our souls. That's actually the pattern, right? And so now I don't have an earthly explanation for you how we're all meant to get it all done with one day less to do it. But I think you will be blessed if you actually do hit stop on your normal routine. Notice how I'm talking here. I'm not talking in terms of threats or punishments. I'm trying to dangle the carrot here for you. I want you to see the good that God intends in the Lord's day. I'm talking about the blessings of God that we may be missing out on. I think God is really telling us that the Sabbath is a gift and not a curse. He's telling us that he gives us a day when we don't have to think about the burdens that we carry around the other days of the week. If we get... All our work done in six days, that seventh day becomes an escape. It becomes a relief. When you really embrace it, it becomes a relief when it comes around. And if you really do put everything else aside. Now, if you let things slip in and you treat it like every other day, you're going to wonder why people make such a big deal about it. And maybe even talk about them the way we talked about Aunt Trolley. She's crazy. Who could ever do that? She's probably a Pharisee. Our passage today deserves our attention because here's the issue. Some people mistakenly understand Jesus here to be overturning the Sabbath. They read the passage and they think Jesus is in this location, in this spot, in this passage, kicking the Sabbath to the curb. Why do they think that? What they say is this, that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath here. Um, as it's written in God's word. But then they follow it up by, by saying it's okay because he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. He, he says that he can do whatever he wants because that's what it means to be Lord of the Sabbath. So the understanding here is that, that when he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, in a sense he's saying the Sabbath is over. The Sabbath is a, is a relic. The rest of the commandments are still there, but the Sabbath day... Well, Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, and well, here he is breaking it. So I want to push back on that, and I want to give a positive vision for what Jesus has in mind when it comes to the Lord's day. Um, To give you a little transparency, this is the part in the sermon where you expect me to say, here are my three points. The problem is this, I was working on the sermon, I'm giving you transparency on how I do this. As I was working on it, I thought, here's the outline. If you, want to, if you want to write down the unpublished outline that I didn't use. <laughs> point one, Jesus the Sabbath keeper. I'm not going to use that as my point one. Point two, Jesus the Sabbath worshiper. I'm not going to use that as my point two either. And point three, Jesus the Sabbath interpreter. I, I 
originally thought, I can work with these points, but here's what happened. They all bleed into each other. Because as I was working on it, my three-point sermon became a pointless sermon. Hopefully not a pointless sermon, but you get it. That doesn't sound so good. Um, The problem I ran into by pushing the sermon into these three restrictive points was that all of the features of the passage are bound up in Jesus' defense of his actions and his defense and his right interpretation and observance of the passage, they couldn't be separated from each other. So when I would talk about point one, I'd have to start talking about point three, and eventually it just didn't make sense to separate them anymore. So uh, instead of having a three-point outline, I want us to do this. Listen to Jesus' defense. Listen to how Jesus defends himself and how he shows that a right understanding of the Sabbath solves everything that's happening here. That's what Jesus is doing. He wants us to rightly appreciate the Sabbath as it exists in the Word of God. And so look what happens here. Think of the situation. Jesus and his disciples, they do two things in the passage that that get them in hot water. The first is his disciples pick heads of grain and pop them in their mouths. Now, Uh, I am from Kansas, as I've mentioned before, Uh, and you would walk through a field, and certainly before the harvest, you could do that. You could take a head of grain, you yank it off into your hand, and then you rub your hands together, and then you would blow, and the chaff would blow away, and what you'd have left in your hands are these neat little kernels of wheat that surely would break your teeth. So um, I'm guessing they had better teeth than I do. Um, And that's what they do. They blow on the wheat, and then they eat the grains. And... That's the first thing that happens. The second thing is this. He goes into the synagogue and he heals this man with a withered hand. Uh, These two actions end up giving us the context for this whole conversation. So the claim of the critics here is that both of these actions violate the Sabbath. They actually violate what God's word says. They say, these men are working. Look at how they just pluck that grain. They're, They're harvesting. Um... Even healing someone counts as work, right? He could do that with the other six days, and yet he's, he heals this man on the Lord's day. He could have done it the other six days. Leon Morris uh, has a great commentary on this passage, and here's what he says about the different violations that the, the, the Pharisees think Jesus is doing. He says this, Plucking the grain was, was reaping. Rubbing it to separate the grain from the husks was threshing. Blowing away the husks may well have been interpreted as winnowing, and for good measure they may have seen the whole as preparation of food, which they also regarded as prohibited. Um, in the Jewish, in the Jewish uh, cycle, all the food that was eaten on the Sabbath day had to be prepared on the previous day. Now, we read, we read the commandment this morning, and you do not find that intense specificity in the passage. This is something that comes later. This is a tradition that is invented and imported later. But this passage still is ground zero for the reason why many Christians today cut down the fourth commandment to simply church attendance. Because some people say, look, Jesus did worship, obviously. He went to the synagogue. But he also worked on the Sabbath, right? His disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. Jesus broke the Sabbath and then he explained it with his own claim to authority. Look, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
But if you follow that reasoning, then the implication is that the text of Exodus 28 through 11 doesn't really apply to us anymore. We need a new way to understand the fourth commandment that isn't as strict as the way that it's written in Exodus chapter 20. And we, say, we see that because Jesus had a lax attitude toward the Lord's day or towards the Sabbath. This interpretation sees the Pharisees as having initially an accurate observation. They say, look, the Pharisees are right. Jesus really is breaking the Sabbath. He's working. But then they see Jesus' speech, and in verses 3 to 8, he's, what is he doing in their minds? He's defending his freedom to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath, even disregard the law of God. Why? Because he's Lord of the Sabbath. He can do whatever he pleases. But is that accurate? Is Jesus really a lawbreaker? Is he just... Is he just the kid whose dad is the principal and gives him a hall pass, right? Is that Jesus? Well, look more closely. First of all, he calls himself innocent in the passage. He says that he is innocent and that he is not guilty in the passage. Um, He doesn't agree with their claim that he's broken the Sabbath at all. He pushes back. Not only is the... Is there nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't prepare food for yourself and eat on the Lord's Day on Sabbath? But he points to the Old Testament and he says, look, there is plenty of work that is legitimate on the Lord's Day. People are not prohibited to pluck grain or work in the temple or show mercy to others. He's showing them how many holes there are in their ironclad rule book. In other words, he's not giving himself permission just because he can. He's not outbreaking God's law that everyone else is supposed to follow. He's arguing that he's not doing that. He's actually arguing that if you want to know what a consistent view of the Sabbath looks like, he says, look at my life. Look how I'm living. I'm modeling it for you. He's saying that the Pharisees just don't get it because they don't understand the Sabbath in the first place, which is why they don't understand what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. They think of it in exclusively negative terms. What should not be happening on this day? Well, you shouldn't be eating. You shouldn't be healing. You shouldn't be cooking. You shouldn't be showing mercy. You shouldn't be creating, in a sense, right? They, they almost seem to think this is a day of death. This is a day of decline. This is a day of sickness to reign. This is a day for poverty to rule. And it's certainly not a day for them to alleviate any of those things. But Jesus is showing them that it's always been true that the Sabbath is a good day to build people up. It is a good day to show mercy, even if it requires us to get our hands dirty. It's a day for what's been worn down to be built back up, for what was made tired to become strong. The Lord's day is a day for mercy. When I was in seminary, I was broke, and I had car trouble. And I had a friend who was a very busy man. Um, he was one of those guys who's multi-talented. He could do anything. And, he, and the shocks on my car were just shot. And he said, look, I can replace the shocks on your car. There needed to be more work done. They needed to replace the whole front end, basically, and all the parts that I don't even remember the names for. And the car people in the room are probably going crazy because I'm not saying the parts right. But there was, there, it was going to take like three or four weeks to do all of the work, and he was going to do it bit by bit. And so for a couple of weeks, he would spend Sunday afternoons helping me replace the shocks. Now, when I say helping me, what I mean is I looked over his shoulder, and I handed him tools. Um, he had no time the rest of the week to help me, and he said this to me. He said, this is a day for acts of mercy. When else will I have time to bless you? 
And that's what he did. He, he saw the Lord's Day for, for what it was. He saw it as an opportunity to show the mercy he couldn't show the other days of the week. It's a day for mercy. It's a day to do what you couldn't otherwise do for the, for the benefit of others. The scripture never prohibited acts of mercy, even if it involved what you might think of traditionally as work. They never prohibited taking care of your own body. The, the scriptures never prohibited taking care of your own family. In the case of David and his men, Jesus points out that they were hungry. They entered, entered God's house and they ate the bread of the presence. In this case, it was God showing mercy on the Sabbath to David and his men. Is God not allowed to show mercy, Jesus asks. Jesus sees the Father's mercy on the Sabbath as proof why he, and by extension all of us, are allowed to show mercy on this day, because God shows mercy on this day. Jesus seems to have even thought out opportunities to, uh, sought out opportunities to heal on the Sabbath. Think of Luke thirteen sixteen. He's he heals the woman with the crooked back, and then notice his commentary. He says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He says, Ought not she be, re- be released from this on the Sabbath day? He says, he says there is something appropriate about the fact that she was loosed from this on the Lord's day. Jesus actually seems to speak as if it's more appropriate that this happened on the Sabbath. This is a day of healing. It's a day of restoration. In the small term, the Sabbath rest is something that restores our bodies. It restores our souls. It makes sense that this day, of all days, this woman was made better. We need to see the goodness of God in the Lord today. We need to see that God gives it to us. It is a present from our God who loves us. It is not a punishment. It is not a punishment. It is not a robbery. It is not God stealing productivity from you. He is giving it to you because he knows and believes that you need it. He roots it in in the creation of the universe before the law of Moses is even written. He says, for in seven days, six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. He goes so far back that you can't blame it on Moses and say, well, now that Moses is superseded or something, now we don't have to have it anymore. He's saying, no. Adam and Eve, from the moment they set foot on this earth, needed six days of work and one day of rest. It was like that for all of their children. Why do we think we're special? Why do we think we're stronger than them? Why do we think we can go with less rest than all of humanity up until the time of Jesus? I know how hard you all go. I, I know how busy and full and nonstop many of your, of your weeks are. I know how hard it is to make plans to get together with many of you. Um, you are busy people. And if you're a busy person who, who is always going, going, going at a million miles an hour and you wonder when your life will slow down, look at this day on your calendar and mark out everything that isn't necessary. It, it is your chance. It is your chance. Um, if you're a busy person especially, you of all people should know how much you need this day to be restored on. Are you, are you tired of going at the pace of the rest of the world? Don't you see that you're like that crooked-backed woman that Jesus healed? You have bonds that you carry, that, 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 that weigh you down, that bend you down. Bonds of busyness and anxiety and exhaustion that are weighing on you. You, of all people, need to be loose of them. Go six days. Go hard 
on those six days. Wear yourself out on those six days, but on day seven, hit the brakes because God loves you. It, it is his gift for you. But for, that, for you to believe that, you have to see it. And you have to believe it down in your bones that God loves you. And that really is a gift. For some of you, you haven't been able to enjoy this gift. You have to work on Sundays. One of the weird things that I've noticed in Oregon is tons of businesses are closed on Tuesdays. Have you noticed all the businesses that are closed on Tuesdays? Guess what? They're open on Sundays. Do you know why? People are going there on Sundays. They find that Tuesday is the least busy day of the week, and so their employees get a day off, but they don't get it on Sundays. One of my friends is a pastor, and he told me that he had an elder in his church, very convicted that he wanted to start evangelizing people. He really wanted to step it up. And so he decided he was going to start over lunch on Sunday after church. And so he asked the waitress who was serving him uh, if she goes to church. And she said, no, I, I don't go to church. And he thinks, oh, man, I've got an apologetic opportunity I'm going to be able to share the Lord Jesus with this woman, and I'm going to learn how to be an evangelist. And so he says, well, why don't you go to church? And she says, because I have to come here and serve you lunch. And he told me that that elder was deeply impacted by that experience. I realize some of you may be like that waitress. You have to work on the Lord's day. Uh, If you didn't, you'd be fired. I was in that position for many years. Many Christians went out to eat on Sundays and shopped on Sundays. And so the restaurants and stores that I worked at for years were always busy on Sundays. So busy, they literally told us, you can't have a job here if you tell us you need Sunday off. Uh, That was the case. I used to work when I was in college. I worked at Applebee's. I couldn't have Sundays off. I worked at Chipotle. I couldn't have Sundays off. I worked at Target. I couldn't have Sundays off. And so for two years, my spiritual life was horrible. It was the darkest spiritual period that I've ever been in. And my wife and I experienced great vexation during those years. And so if you work on Sundays, you have my love and my sympathy that you have been made to choose between providing for yourself and observing the Lord's day. Or you might work in some line of emergency work. Something that you don't, wouldn't want to be closed on Sundays. You may be a doctor or a nurse or a first responder or somebody who keeps important things going that are works of necessity. And if that is you, I'm sorry that I'm waiting so long into the sermon to say this. And if you work on Sunday, I want you to know I do not speak words of condemnation to you here. I speak words of encouragement. The, the Lord loves you. And he is kind and he is merciful. How do you think about your work on Sundays? I think it's right for you to see your work as a way of showing mercy to people. I think you should see it as a way of showing mercy to other people. But I would also encourage you to pray to the Lord that in time, if it's something that's untenable, if it's something especially that keeps you from really having the Lord's day on a regular basis, that you would pray for the Lord to help your opportunities to change, help your situation to change, um, Not because you're afraid of the anger of God, but because you're missing out on blessings and you can tell. I I do not come to you with threats. How could I? In Christ, God is not angry with you, but he also loves you enough that you should seek out how you can receive God's blessing on this day the best that you can. Um, This is why, by the way, 
It's a great blessing that the Sabbath now takes place on the day when Jesus rose from the dead. What does that say to us? It says to us that the day of rest is the day when Jesus acted to restore us. His resurrection is our life. This is a day of life. This is a day of rest because for Jesus it was the day when his own life was raised up and given for us as well. Jesus does not break the Sabbath. He fulfills it. He doesn't diminish it. He understands it. He doesn't rescind it. He interprets it, but he doesn't retract it. When he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he is not asserting the right to violate God's word. He's asserting his right understanding of the Sabbath, and he's pointing to scriptural authority for what he says. To be Lord of the Sabbath means that Jesus understands the Sabbath. He's interpreting it in the way that they should have seen it in scripture from the beginning. Think of it this way. If Jesus was truly a Sabbath breaker, he would have been a sinner. In John 8, 46, Jesus challenges anyone to convict him of sin. And yet he knows that he is not a lawbreaker and he is very comfortable presenting the challenge for anyone to answer. Let me give you an encouragement here. For some of you, you really could need to listen closely to Jesus' words here that the Sabbath is a day for mercy. Uh, It is a day that is is life-giving. For some people who have become fixated on their Lord's Day observance, it can be unhealthy. I have known church members who observed the Sabbath, and they did it so carefully that they were almost embittered toward others in the church that they knew weren't. Right? There was an angry sort of pride in their observance of the Lord's Day. I once spoke to a Christian who said, My family and I go to church, we avoid work, we try to make anyone we try not to make anyone work for us on the Lord's Day, and yet it seems like no one else in my church does this. I can't help but feel angry when I see how little people care about this. Someone said that to me. Very honest confession, the sort of pastoral answers that are pastoral problems that people come to you with. And that could be you. Maybe you, maybe, you, maybe you are very excited by this sermon. Maybe you are the one person in this room that's excited to hear this. <laughs> what a dangerous place to be. That the Lord's Day was not given to us so that we could compete or measure ourselves or uh, judge others. That is not why he gave us the Lord's Day. There's only danger if we take the path of watching and focusing on others and scrutinizing and watching and judging. Many in the church are missing a golden opportunity. Um, the Puritans called the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. The day when you stock up, when you get ready for the challenges of the week ahead. Um, how do I think about people who aren't observing the Lord's Day? I had a pastor in Kansas who demonstrated very well for us how to observe the Lord's Day. And here's what he did. He never said squat to us about what we did on Sundays. So I go to the, the church in Wichita, Kansas, where we're attending church as a PCA church, and I tell them, I think I'm called to the ministry. And they're very excited, they're receptive, and they say, you know, one thing we'd like you to do on Sunday evenings, we don't have an evening service, but we want to do a Bible study, uh, and we would love for you to lead it. And so I said, okay, that's fine. I would love to do that. But we lived an hour away. And so the pastor of the church for a year let my family come over and stay at their house all afternoon. We ate lunch with them 
every Sunday, and uh, they fed us for a year. <laughs> we just came and stayed at their house all afternoon, and our kids were a little picky. I said were, I didn't say are now. So each Sunday, what would we do? We would drive from the church on the way to their house. We knew they were going to have roast beef and potatoes. We knew our children weren't going to eat those roast beef and potatoes, so we would stop at Wendy's, and we would get chicken nuggets and french fries for them. And then we would go, we would go to Pastor Rick's house, Rick Frank's. I think I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited. And we'd go to Pastor Rick's house, and my family would walk in with these Wendy's bags. It's just rude on so many levels, but anyway... We'd go in, and our kids would sit there, and they would eat. And it took me a very long time before I started to see a pattern in their lives where I realized they weren't doing the stuff we were doing on Sunday afternoons. And they never said anything to us. They never lectured us. They never, they never said anything to us. And they modeled for us a very patient way of showing us a different way that life could be done. And I really think we would still, without them, we would still probably be doing the stuff we did before. I look at the Lord's Day as a missed opportunity. I look at it like the, the church's fellowship meal. You know, we have the church fellowship meal once a month. And when, when we have the church fellowship meal, we have all kinds of stuff in front of us, right? Uh, we have meatballs, roast beef. We have chicken, uh, rice, salad, Hawaiian sweet rolls. And then some people come through, and, and they may be under the age of 10, I don't know, but they fill their plates with Doritos and brownies. <laughs> Hopefully, you just chuckle when you see it, and it doesn't make you angry, but you do think to yourself, I wonder how he's going to feel in a few hours, you know? And I, I feel the same way about the Lord's Day, right? You, um, I guess it could make you angry, but if anything, it should make you sad or a little bit amused at this great opportunity that's been missed. That's what it is. It's a missed opportunity. And you know what? None of us take full advantage of the meal that we have before us on the Lord's Day. You might think I'm holding myself up as some kind of model. I'm not. Um, I have so far to go. We have enough sin and trouble in our own hearts as it is. It will only distress us if, uh, to see how others don't take advantage of the good that God has given to us. That's why I say... Do not worry about how other people are handling the gifts that they've been given. Instead, consider yourself and your own family. Now, perhaps there's a place to gently encourage a brother or sister that you know well to really take hold of the good that's offered to us here. But my preference is not to confront. My preference is to lead by example the way Rick did for me. My, my preference is not to lecture. That's why I was terrified to preach this sermon today. I don't want to talk about it. I would rather slowly, gently model it than talk about it. And pray that the Lord would make me somebody that someone would want to model themselves after. But if you see anger in your heart toward those who aren't taking full advantage of the, the potluck that they have every Sunday, hand that anger over to the Lord and confess the pride that is at the root of that anger. And if that's you, would you commit to seeing the grace and mercy of the Sabbath instead of focusing on the restrictiveness of it? Would you, would you commit to the Lord himself instead of watching your own law-keeping with a sense of pride? If, if you've become proud of observing the Sabbath, you are in spiritual danger. 
You've forgotten that the Lord's day is a blessing because you are weak, not because you're strong. The Lord's day isn't to puff you up. It's given to humble you and give you a sense of helplessness and dependence on God. And if you're proud and if you're angry, then you aren't humbled and you aren't dependent. Instead, you're self-righteous and you found strength in yourself. Now, some of you may need that correction, and it was a long correction, but we need to say it. And some of you may be made it a different correction. You may need to be pressed toward a greater appreciation of the Sabbath. Um, it is possible some of you have rejected the Sabbath altogether, or at least you've neglected it and you've let it fall by the wayside. My hope is that you can see the goodness of what God has given us with the Lord's Day. Isaiah 58, 13. In, in Isaiah 58, 13, God tells, tells us to call the Sabbath a delight. He tells us to call it a delight. And the holy day of the Lord honorable, right? That's all carrot. That's all carrot, no stick that he's holding out there in Isaiah. Call the Sabbath a delight. Call it a delight. Why? Well, that, that is our work, isn't it? To see the good in what God's given to us. In all of his gifts, right? In all of the commandments of God, we should look and ask the question, why is this a delight? Why is it a delight to keep your law? I would plead with you from God's word not to only see that God commands it. See that he loves you. And, and he commands it because it's a delight. And so if you don't see the delight in it, ask God to help you see it. Ask him to slowly but surely and steadily press upon you the blessings that he has that you've not grabbed hold of. You have a real need for real rest from the world and its worries. This day is a chance for God to shape you and to be your provider so that you don't feel the pressure to carry all the weight yourself. Because on the Sabbath, what does Jesus say? He says, give me the weight. Give me the trouble that you carry. Give me your anxieties. Give me your life the other, that you carry around with you the other six days. Instead, let me be the carrier of those things. The Lord's Day is, is good. It is a blessing. It is a delight. If you have children at home, let me say something right now. It is a time to put into place patterns for your family that your children will see and they will learn to love and Lord willing, they, would, they, will be, they will see the beauty of it even as they get older and establish their own families and their own routines as well. The patterns you're teaching them now are the patterns that they will practice in their own families. And so in that regard, I've been talking about the blessings of all of this. I, I want to close with something special. A while back, Janice Hawkins shared a poem with me that was written by her grandmother Ruth in the 1930s. Um, she sent this to me. And I told her that one day I would read it in a sermon. And so I'm actually going to close with this. The poem's called The Sabbath. It was a family heirloom, a very precious thing, but the betrothed has sold her jewel, the wedded one, her ring. Why should the world of industry keep that which we despise? Should they respect the Sabbath, not valued in our eyes? Our children's children, careworn, looking back, shall sadly say, they had it in their keeping and bartered it away. Let's pray that's not the case for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see the Lord's day as a precious inheritance, something that you have gifted to us because you love us. Help us to see 
that it is a kind present, a gracious blessing. Help us to see that this day is a gift and and that it's a blessing to us and that you love us enough to tell us to put our burdens down and have one day in seven when we do not lean on our own strength and understanding. Make us merciful on this day. Make us to be kind and gracious on this day. Make us like Jesus who especially looked for opportunities to show your life to people who desperately needed it. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.